So Steve, our pastor, for those of you, if you're new or visiting, Steve and his wife Pam are down in Texas taking Abby to school, getting her all checked in. Uh, Shannon, he is in Oklahoma with their second oldest, Carson, getting him all checked into school. I talked to Shannon yesterday, um, trying to see how it was going. If you don't know this about Shannon, looks a little tough exterior, doesn't smile a whole lot. Man, is he a softie on the inside. I can guarantee you he's crying right now. It's awesome. Uh, the only thing that he would tell me is he's like, well, it's really hot. Like, All right, that's fair. Uh, so they're gone, and they asked me to fill in this Sunday as we continue working through uh, the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in since the beginning of the year, uh, and we will be in for several more months. I'm not totally sure how long it's going to take, um, and I'm really excited to be here. But if you're new or visiting, uh, or only have seen me on stage doing announcements, you might wonder, who is this guy? Why is he on stage? Uh, I know Dave Gamber's been wondering that. Uh, well, my name, my name is Rob. I work here at Northview. I oversee middle school and high school ministries. Uh, I work with Zeb. He focuses on middle school, but we do a lot together. Uh, this is our high school over here. A good chunk of them here this morning, which is awesome. Uh, my wife, Amanda, was up here playing keys. She's sitting right up here. Uh, yay! Just kidding. <laughs> uh, this November will be two years of being married. A lot of you were at our wedding at North Shore. Um, it was super small, just five or six hundred of our closest friends, uh, but that's all good. My parents are here. They're sitting right there, and my in-laws, Amanda's parents, are there, and I just, I was telling first service this, man, I feel so blessed. Our parents, I'm pretty sure, like hanging out with each other more than they like hanging out with Amanda and I. Uh, like Our dads go out to lunch. Our parents hang out, and I just, that's so cool, and it's so nice to be welcomed into a family. Uh, my family grew exponentially when I got married. It was my parents and I, and Amanda's part of a really big family, all that lives in the area, so super cool there. Uh, I've been on staff at Northview. This fall will be five years, uh, which is absolutely incredible for someone, if you've ever heard part of my story. Never thought I'd work in ministry, but here we go, five years in. Uh, four of that with the students, one year of that in the children's I want to give huge credit and props to Kayla, our children's director, and to everyone that volunteers. I am, I am a humble enough man to acknowledge my year in children's was God's plan as a placeholder for Kayla to come up here. So she's here, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, but five years here. Um, one of the things that some people know, but, that, but others may not, I'm actually in graduate school. I figured I just got married. I work full-time at the church, got a lot going on. Let's add on top of that. Uh, so I go to Grand Canyon University um, online. I don't go, someone was like, how do you go down to Phoenix all the time? <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> and I've been doing that for a year and a half, and I will be graduating this October, which is pretty sweet. But, yeah, you can clap for that, but here's the thing. My graduation is on the same day that my last class starts. So I will graduate in October, and I will be done in December. So a little... A little goofy, but whatever. We'll be going down there. So my first time on campus will be the day of my graduation, which is pretty cool. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, it's been a very full summer. I uh, haven't really been at Northview a ton. Uh, took a group of our high school students and leaders to Mexico for 12 days on a mission trip. Came back five days later, reloaded. and Thanks, Cameron. Uh, <laughs> and then we went to Montana for summer camp. And we got back from that last Saturday night. And it's just kind of been a week of recovery and getting my feet under me and I've done more laundry in the last three weeks than I think I've done in the last three years. Uh, it's just been absolutely incredible. But it's been an awesome summer and now 
here with you guys this morning. So we're going to dive in um, this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark 8. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to pick up where John was speaking on last week. We're going to continue that. Uh, Starting in verse 31, we're going to be looking at the rest of chapter 8 here this morning. Um, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Lord, it's, it's a great opportunity to be here, and I just pray that what's spoken about this morning, what's shared from your word, Lord, truly be from you. And uh, Lord, may, may I just be a vessel, may it be an opportunity for all of us to learn something new about you, about your life, your ministry, and your, your desires for us, and may we learn something to apply moving forward from here. In your son's name, amen. So the two sections that we're going to be looking at, they're pretty rich. So Steve gave me the verses, and I was like, great. Sounds good. It's only like seven or eight verses. Super cool. And then I started diving into them and realized there's a lot there. So I'm going to be hitting a few main points. And I want to encourage you when we're done here this morning and you go home, spend some time with the section that we're talking about this morning. Because what I'm teaching on and what stood out to me may not be what the Lord is illuminating for you. And I want to encourage you to go and spend that time. So the first section we're going to look at this morning is Mark 8, verses 31 and 33. And this first section is Jesus talking about his upcoming persecution, death, and resurrection to the disciples. And we have the first part of it here. And it says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this, plainly. This section of Jesus' teaching, which was just at the time for the disciples, comes immediately following the disciples, and especially Peter's, confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And now he's like, okay, now that you're starting to get it, here is what's going to happen. He details the upcoming events. And what he's doing is he's shifting the disciples' messianic expectations from a conquering king that Israel's been expecting to a suffering Savior that needs to die. And I love that Mark highlights in his gospel that he taught them plainly about his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. The time had come in Jesus' ministry for him to really begin equipping them, knowing that before too long, he was going to leave and the responsibility of sharing the gospel message would be theirs. So he teaches them plainly in order to equip them. He didn't use any parables. He didn't hide anything. It says he taught them plainly. Here is what is going to happen. All centered on, I'm going to die, but then be resurrected. We see in his statements, and and we can kind of read between the lines that uh, all throughout the Bible, there's prophecies given of what's going to happen with the Messiah. How is he going to save humanity? And what's so cool is Jesus is like, hey, those things that you've been reading about, they're starting right now. We're beginning that process. The events are just around the corner. And for us, we have an advantage that the, 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 uh, the disciples did not. We can keep reading. We can say, whoa, Jesus is teaching that he's going to die. Like, wh- what's going to happen? And we can read and say, he does die. He does resurrect and he does ascend. Uh, And I'm so excited that as a church family, those events that we so often just attribute to Easter and look at in the spring, this fall, as we head into the Christmas season, we get to be reminded 
of those same stories and Jesus on the cross. And I think that's going to be absolutely incredible. However, there's a problem. Jesus teaches them what's going on. He says, this is what's going to happen. And then there's Peter. Oh, Peter. At this point, no doubt the disciples are starting to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but they're struggling with what he's saying, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to suffer, and that he's going to die. Because it didn't fit their assumptions of what the Messiah was going to do. So as was common among the disciples, Peter speaks up. I don't think Peter is alone. I think these thoughts were going through all of their heads. But Peter is the one that speaks up first. I think Peter is a great example of believers and for believers. And I look at Peter and I see some of my tendencies in him. Because what Peter does, all the records that we have of Peter, is Peter does. Peter's very reactionary when something happens. If we go back and we look at Matthew 4, when Jesus is starting to call his disciples, he's working on the fishing boat, and Jesus says, follow me. Peter, okay, and goes. He just does it. Matthew 14, disciples are on a boat in the middle of the lake. It's nighttime. Jesus is walking on the water. He says, if you believe who you say I am, come out and join me. Peter, okay, I'll get out of a boat and walk on water towards you. John 18, Jesus is in the garden not long after the events that we're looking at today. Jesus is getting arrested. Does anybody know what Peter does? He pulls out a sword like, and, and chops the guy's ear off. Like he's just, Peter's just doing stuff. I don't even know where, where Peter got a sword from. Like it doesn't tell us that. It just says that he drew a sword. Did he have one with him? Was, was Peter ready for anything? Uh, or did he take one from somebody else? Point is, he had one, and he started swinging it. Because he just does. In so many situations in the Gospels, we see the brazenness of Peter just take over. Peter reacts. Now, thankfully, we get to see Peter's life change. And at different points, we get to see this brazenness, and we see his boldness strengthened through Christ to the point where Peter is ultimately used as one of the greatest missionaries and church planners of all time, I would argue second only to Paul. And Acts 2 gives us a little bit of insight into Peter's maturity and growth because there's a time when, once again, Peter does react. He stands up and starts testifying, but he details the gospel and at the end of this long proclamation of who Jesus is, there's a, just a little sentence that says, and 3,000 came to believe in Christ that day. Like, we see Peter's boldness grow. But at this point in the story, Peter is still his reactionary, lovely self. In fact, after Jesus teaches them, Peter decides, I'm going to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. I have in my notes one of the questions I had when I was studying. Is this bold or foolish? Doesn't matter. It was Peter. 
not moments after he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, and after a length of time following Jesus, Peter decides he's the one that needs to speak up and rebuke Jesus. Now, at first, when I was studying this, it doesn't make sense. Why would Peter do that? But it's simple. Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer and die. He wanted Jesus to stay. He wanted him to be the king he claimed to be. He wasn't thinking in terms of a heavenly debt to repay the cost of sin or a divine mission for the souls of humanity. He was thinking with a human mind, one not fully transformed for the kingdom of God. He wanted Jesus to be king. He confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. But he also focused on his human desires and picture of what that should look like. He was ready for the glory of the Messiah that had been promised to the Jewish people for generations. But he could not and almost would not comprehend the coming persecution and its necessity in the narrative of the gospel story. As we read from Paul in Romans 12, a major aspect of being a follower of Jesus is having a mind transformed to perceive God's will. And so when we see Peter react in this in this situation, we get a glimpse into his spiritual journey. He's getting there. He's not quite there. But it doesn't stop. Following Peter's rebuke of Jesus, and we don't know what he said or how much he said, but I think we can kind of imply what was said. Jesus does something very interesting. I think often when we read the gospel and we read the words of Jesus, especially if your Bible is one that has the red letters in it, we're quick to go to Jesus' words. But we don't always look at a little bit of the description of what's happening in between those words. And it says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Before Jesus responds, he turns and looks at the disciples. Because Peter is not alone in this thinking. And while Jesus' rebuke is addressed and focused to Peter, he's addressing all 12 of them through him. Jesus is basically like, all right, Peter, if you want to be the spokesperson for the group, I'm going to give you a little message that's for everybody, but it's going to be directed at you. So he turns and sees the disciples before reacting. And the language of Jesus in some ways is is a little harsh. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. I love working with Steve and Shannon. I don't know what I would do. Maybe with Church in the Park this Sunday, if I went in and I was talking to Steve or Shannon or both of them, they're like, this is what it's going to look like. And I was like, uh, I think that's a dumb idea. And Steve looks at me and says, get behind me, Satan. I don't know. I'd be like, all right, it's going to be a little difficult right now. But Jesus continues. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the things of man. You see, it's not the individuals that he is rebuking. It's their mindset. It's the thoughts that they're having. It's their lack of understanding of God's plan, which includes the need for Jesus to die. The disciples disciples were falling victim to their human nature and allowing seeds of doubt to be sown by the enemy. And I believe in this point, similar to other points in the gospel, we get a glimpse into the fully man side of Jesus. 
Because if his immediate 12 start telling him that this doesn't need to happen, don't do this, I think we can see the beginnings of temptation in his human side. Just in the same way as he did the night before he was betrayed and he was praying for God, if there's a plan B, now's the time. But in both, we see his divinity saying, no, I know this is what needs to happen. The disciples were struggling with, with the harmony of the crucifixion and the Messiah because their thinking was dominated by a human line of thought. They knew what Jesus was saying, but they didn't understand it. Jesus tells them this, that they were focused on the wrong thing. That they're focused on a worldly view, the things of man and not the things of God. And as followers of Jesus, we need to set our mind on the things of God. It may not always make sense. It may not always fit what we think it should look like. But we can see here the importance of being kingdom focused. This was the the mistake of the disciples. Jesus was quick to work against the scheme of the enemy who was seeking to stop his mission from succeeding. And it's not that different from when he was tempted in, in the wilderness and the night before he was betrayed. Jesus is quick to work against the schemes of the enemy. After this exchange, can't imagine that the disciples felt great. But what Jesus does is it has to continue. The narrative keeps unfolding. There's more to teach. And what he does, what we see is he ends up bringing everybody in, the crowd in. I think sometimes when we read, um, it's easy to think that it was just the disciples, that it was just Jesus and the 12, just 13 guys hanging out. Uh, And we forget some of the references that there's multitudes, there's crowds following this Jesus guy to see what he's all about. Uh, And the second half of this section, 34 through 38 of Mark 8, show us teaching meant for the crowd. He turns and gathers the crowd back around him along with the disciples because now what he's going to teach them is for everybody. The disciples have been given information that not everyone has. But now Jesus says part two is for everybody that's here to understand. And he talks about the cost of discipleship, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the cost that it carries with it. He starts off, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus, we are instructed that we must deny ourselves. To intentionally walk away from our human and sinful nature and surrender to Jesus and seek to follow him. There is a cost to confessing Jesus as Lord. The cost is that we must lose part of ourselves and even be willing to suffer here on earth for the good of him. Self-determination is replaced with obedience and dependency on Christ. Jesus understood this. He was in the middle of demonstrating what this looked like. The disciples understood this as they had walked away from everything to follow Jesus. To follow him is to give up our current selves and pursue Jesus. The imagery that Jesus used by taking up a cross would have resonated with the people he was speaking with a lot more than it does for us. We think of the cross, and a lot of times as Christians, we might think of it just in relation to the death of Jesus. 
But the cross was a tool used by the Roman Empire. It was a symbol of suffering and death. The people that heard this would have understood what Jesus was telling them. They would suffer for his name and that they would potentially die. Jesus tells them and tells us there's a cost. He teaches that whoever seeks to save his own life will lose it. That whoever tries to put the pieces in place, say, you know what, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm going to do what I can. And Jesus says, that's not enough. Traffic is better than usual. It's awesome. That's good news. It's good news. Someone's going to be confused on the recording later, but that's cool. I love it. That's so cool. (laughs) Whoever denies themselves and follows Jesus will save their life. We're called to give up a self-focused life in order to live as God truly called. The disciples would go on to get this. The disciples would go on to understand the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. One disciple took his own life, Judas, following Jesus' betrayal, and the other 11, by church tradition, 10 of them, would go on to live and die a martyr's death. Jesus also starts to shift the paradigm around and and throw out some confusing questions, asking, what can a man give in return for his own soul? And I'll tell us, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can buy, there's nothing we can possess, or anything else that allows us to truly purchase our soul. We cannot live a self-centered, self-focused life and still find eternal life in Jesus because everything in the world is still less than the price of our soul. We live in a fairly affluent area. For some of us, it may not feel like it. For those of us who just went to Mexico and came back, okay, this is a fairly affluent area. People here own a lot of stuff. Nothing wrong with owning some stuff. Nothing wrong at all. But your soul is the most precious thing. Yet many of us give away pieces of it to people or things thinking that that will save us. And yet here's Jesus, the one who paid the full price for your soul, for your salvation, for your eternal life, and freely gives it because he loves us and desires a relationship with us. I'm challenged when I read some of these things and I wonder, what am I giving my soul to on a daily basis? Am I occasionally saying, hey, Jesus, that sacrifice you made, the the, the price you paid for my salvation, that's pretty good. but I'm going to give away part of myself or I'm going to try to put something else in there because I think it was, I think what you did was good, but I don't think it was quite enough. Or am I going to believe what scripture says that I'm created in the image of God, that he is greater than I and thus my soul is not my own, but his and he purchased it on my behalf, fulfilling a price that I never could my own. And I might look at a book like Ezekiel who recorded the words of God who said, 
every person, everyone belongs to me. What I love in this section is Jesus ends it the same way he started. With a promise and a prophecy. In verse 31, he foretells and he's teaching the disciples about his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension. And here in verse 38, he's promising that he will come again. I like to think that part of that, the disciples are like, okay, he's reaffirming, he's coming back. He promises his ultimate and final judgment, stating he will judge those who lived a life ashamed of Jesus. Just as with the gospel account of when he was teaching the disciples, and we might want to know what that looks like so we can read ahead and read about his death and resurrection, when he's talking about coming back again, we get another glimpse of that, thanks to John. John had a vision. He wrote down that vision just as God told him to and titled it. It's a little book known as Revelation at the end of your Bible. But we get a glimpse there as to what it'll look like when Christ returns. A time when humanity will be divided of who decided to stand for Jesus and to Jesus' own words, who lived a life ashamed of him. Christ will return. It's a promise we can be assured of. And it's up to us to decide how to live to either honor him and honor the price that he paid for our soul or to be ashamed by him. We live in a day and age when following Jesus might not be the most popular thing to do. But Jesus promises us that it's worth it. And while there's a cost, it's an earthly cost, it's a temporary cost, and on the other side of that is an eternity. I think it's also worth it to point out to me that Jesus references in this passage a sinful and adulterous generation. We're human. We like to spin things to make ourselves look better. We look at that and we're like, wow, things in Jesus' time must have been really bad for him to call them that. Glad he's not calling us out. But really when we read that, I think what Jesus is describing is not the generation of those around him but the age of humanity filled with sin. And it doesn't take long to look around in our own culture to see evidence of that sin and corruption and the need of a Savior. So here's what I want to do. As I was working through this this week, and I've told you there's a lot here, and I want to encourage you, take it home, walk through it yourself. I tried to narrow it down. I was like, what are the couple of things that are sticking out to me? And those are the couple of things that I want to share with you. And there they are. There you go. Have a great day. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the first is what the disciples were starting to realize, that God's plans are often greater than our own understanding. But we need to put our full faith and trust in him. We see how the disciples and Peter reacted when Jesus instructed them as to what was going on. His plan was greater than what they could understand. And we can learn from that. We can learn to trust that he knows better and has an ultimate plan for each of us. We were just in Montana, right? 
like a week ago, which is pretty crazy. Two weeks ago. And we did a lot of new activities. Who of students that went to Montana, who did some activity this week or at camp that you had never done before? Okay. So we did a lot. Yeah, I did too. Uh, It was crazy cool. A lot of times in those activities, you're faced with a situation where you don't know what's about to happen. Maybe it was on the ropes course. Maybe it was on the rock wall. For me, it was while we were whitewater rafting and like the rapids are coming up. And part of you that a minute ago was like, this is so cool. You see the rapids and you're like, no, it's not. Like, what am I going to (laughs) do? And it's so easy in those times. We do this with all sorts of things where you're like, you know what? I've never done this before, but I bet I know exactly what to do. And you don't. You have no idea. And we had to trust in the staff of Bighorn to tell us what to do. When we're in the raft and the guy's telling us where to paddle, when to paddle, what to do, we got to trust. When they're rock climbing, other people might have an advantage of seeing where your next hand or foothold is going to be, and you have to trust. Sometimes we're in situations where we have to rely on things outside of our own understanding. In life, we don't always know what's coming. We don't know what's about to happen, but we have to trust in a God who does. And I'm sure there's times in each of our lives where it just, life doesn't make sense. We don't understand what's happening and yet we choose to put our trust in Jesus and take a step forward. We may be like Peter. There may be times in your life that you want to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him because what he's having you go through or what the world threw your way does not fit your picture. And I think that's understandable. I've been at times in my life where I've been angry at God because it doesn't fit what I wanted to happen. But we need to learn and we need to allow God to work even outside of our own timeline, our own understanding and our own expectations. That's a really easy thing to talk about. Even when I was writing it, I was like, oh man, really easy to type those words out. Living them is a whole nother thing. And I'm so thankful that we have a God that allows grace, that allows a lot of chances, and that we're part of a church community that has one another's backs. The second thing that really stood out to me is that following Jesus requires refinement, especially in our thinking. We need to shift our thinking to be kingdom-focused rather than world-focused. Just as Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, they were too focused on the things of man and not on the things of God. They were working on it. They were getting there. We see that they get it. So we can see at those times in our life when we're not getting it, I got to keep moving forward and trusting in God. They required refinement. Refinement. A daily surrender to the will of God. We talk about that a lot. We talk about surrender being a daily refinement or a daily surrender. I don't know about you guys, Sometimes in my walk with Jesus, it's not a daily surrender. It's like a minute-by-minute surrender. And that's what we need to do to become more kingdom-focused than human-focused. In Mexico, first night in Mexico, 
we've been gone for a couple of days. We've been in California. Funny enough, crossing the border didn't go as planned. Okay, we get to Mexico, sun setting. We're setting up camp. We're having dinner, and it's just boom, 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 boom. If you guys are with us, I think you can remember that first night, that Saturday night we were there. Like, I felt like it was just kind of flying by, and all of a sudden it's like time to go to bed. It's 10:30 at night. It's hot. Okay, it it was like 95 during the day, and it cooled off to like a balmy 87 at night. All right, you're in a tent we finished unpacking in the dark. So I'm, I remember getting to my tent, looking around, no idea where my stuff is. All that organization I did at home or in California to be ready, it's gone. Like, can't see it. It's dirty. The first realization of like, wow, they weren't kidding. We get two showers in the next eight days. And ours is in three days. This is great. Starting to miss some of the comforts of home. Amanda was at home. Starting to miss my wife a little bit. Be like, wow, California was one thing, and now we're here. And Man, this sucks. Like, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's dirty, it's gross. And I remember sitting there, and my first thought, that human nature kicks in. And I'm like, I have keys to a van. <laughs> the border is a half hour away. And I remember having to pray about it and be like, all right, God, I think it didn't take very long and I'm, I'm getting ready for bed. It's late. People around me are sleeping and I've hit my low. And the next eight days in this situation are going to be terrible if I lean into myself. And I remember God pressing on my mind, why are you here? And I realized what I've been talking about, even to our team and to my wife, of why we were going in that moment, it's like, that's right. It's not about me right now. We're here to serve other people. I'm here to lead a team from our church and partner with other youth pastors to lead this whole thing. And we're serving people that this is their every day. I needed to allow God to do a little mind transformation. That was my low point of the week allowing God to change why I was there, to change, get that selfish human focus and shift me into an other's kingdom focus mentality. And for me, the week took off from there. The Bible talks about the transforming of our minds through Christ and the change in our actions and behaviors when we decide to follow him. What areas in each of our lives do we need to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate and refine? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that because of Christ and the work that he does in us, we are a new creation. Once again, highlighting the need for refinement in Jesus because he says that that true life change comes through Jesus, not through us. The third thing is there's a cost to following Jesus. It'll probably cost us something but the heavenly side is worth it. For some, I've been talking to some of the high schoolers about this. For some, that comes at an, an adjustment and loss of friendship. Not that we need to push non-believers out of our life because if we all just focused on like-minded people, like who's going to reach them? But that inner circle, your close-knit group, your best friends, the people that you go to, they have to be, if you're a Christian, they got to be Jesus-following believers. They have to be. 
And for some of us, that means a little bit of adjustment in our lives. For some, following Jesus may require a change of personal habits or lifestyles to be more in line with what the Bible teaches us. And that can be difficult. Giving up habits. Habits make us feel comfortable. I remember talking to some guys at camp and there's habits in our lives that we probably hate, but we keep doing because they're familiar to us. But to follow Jesus means setting those things aside. Some of us may be called by God to take the gospel in crazy places around the world. In Mexico, we heard from a lot of different missionaries, saw missionaries in action. Here at Northview, if you go out in the back hallway, you see the map of the missionaries that we support. Those are people called by God to take his gospel message and go. Not all of us might be called to do that. All of us are called to share the gospel. If you're a Christian, sorry, you don't, you don't get out of that one. But some of us may be called to give up what's familiar and what's comfortable to go reach other people. And to a select few of us, the cost of following Jesus may be the ultimate price. And it may come at laying down our life for the gospel. I went to college with this girl. She grew up in Colorado. uh, And her sister, who was a couple years older than her, went to went to a high school in Colorado that some of us may remember from the 90s. And her sister's best friend was in the library at lunch reading when a young man pointed a gun in her face and said, do you believe in God? She's the one that the Michael W. Smith song is about. She had to lay down her life for the gospel. Her family saw lives changed because of that. Some of us, there may come a time where we have to lay down our lives just as the disciples did for the gospel. But whatever the cost, we have to know that following Jesus is worth it. Because just as he said, he is truly the way, the truth, and the life. I'd like to ask the, uh, the worship team to come back up. So this week, I, w- I want you to look at these things. I want you to look. This is what stood out to me. You may look at this. You may look at the section that we covered and been like, Hey, there's a bunch of other stuff that when I read it, that's what stands out to me. That's awesome. Crazy enough, a group of Christians can read the same passage and the Holy Spirit can illuminate different things for different people. And I want you to look at the words, look at Jesus' teaching, look at the disciples' reactions and see, God, what are you trying to do, do in me? What do I need to refine in my life? Seek Him. For those of you in community groups, spend some time That's a great group to be open with. Share about what God's doing in your life. Would you guys stand as we close in prayer? Lord, this week, may we as a church body truly seek you. May you highlight those areas in our life that need refinement. May you become real to all of us in a new way. May we learn from the disciples, Lord, who were so quick to read about and say, I would never do that but may we learn to trust in you daily. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for people willing to share what you've done in their life. May you be real. May you be alive in our lives this week. In your son's name, amen.